And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. You know, Roughly two years ago, we all got thrown into a scenario where a pandemic then ruled our lives and in many cases ruined our businesses and in some cases maybe even made them better. And it definitely changed the whole landscape of raising capital for all types of people, all types of businesses. And that's exactly what we're going to get into today. We're going to talk about raising capital during a pandemic. And I got someone here who's quite an expert at that. And before I tell you who that is, I want to let you know that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. With me today is not a first-time guest. Someone's been on the show twice in the past, Donald Hawkins. And Donald is the founder and CEO of Kenley, which was also known as First Boulevard. Kenley is a financial technology platform. You go to bkenley.com. Now, there's a link in the show notes that'll help you get there even faster. I guess let's just go ahead and say, Donald Hawkins, welcome back. Glad to be back, Matt. Uh, this updated studio, man. Y'all are doing the thing. Yeah, it's uh, you know the 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 startup hustle sign is glowing again, and so is your success recently, Don. You've Appreciate you. had so much going on. We've taught you. You know, you were uh, you were uh, episode fifty. So nearly 700 wow. episodes later. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. wild, man. T- today's startup, we're record- although it won't come out on Startup Hustle's birthday, today's also our fourth birthday, man. There you go. Yeah. Four, we're four. That's we're not, crazy. We're, we're going to get into preschool soon. Let's do it, babe. Yeah. So, you know, Donald, I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, pretend like everyone listening is going to remember, have, has listened to these 700 episodes. You were also on with guest host, Melissa Vincent with Pipeline Entrepreneurs. Shout out, Melissa. Love you. She's awesome. Yeah, that was, that's, that was a fun uh, guest series, but let, you know, let's get a little bit of background about you before we talk about Kenley and First Boulevard and all the other stuff that you've been doing. Yeah, man. Thanks so much, Matt. Uh, I like to tell people I'm just a country boy who just rode the way into venture. Uh, grew up in a small little town in South Georgia called Albany. Got connected to some really cool mentors and advisors that uh, showed me another way um, and found my way in the venture space uh, through one of my mentors that built a drop shipping website uh, back in the 90s. So uh, I was maybe about 10 years ahead of my time in learning about venture. Started my first company in college called Dr. Phonebook. It's a, a very early version of what people now know as ZocDoc, uh, where we built a site for doctors to advertise web pages. We charged 100 bucks a month. It was SaaS before SaaS. Me and my roommate uh, ended up uh, making about 17K a month. So we signed about 170 doctors, blew the money every single month. We were broke. <laughs> We were always broke the last week of the month, you know, but we knew on the first of the next month, we'd be good to go. And uh, that's how I got my start, man. Sold that company for a little bit over half a million bucks and burned through that cash hella fast. But I uh, earned my stripes since then. And and here you are. And I, I should mention to everyone, your company has made it onto our top Kansas City startup list. Yes, sir. That's a hell of a list this year. Yes, sir. Yeah. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hometown list for us. So if, if you're not aware, Start Apostle is based in Kansas city and probably our first 150 to 200 guests were all from Kansas city. We even talked about that before we started recording about it's, uh, is being on Start Apostle, has that become a rite of passage for Kansas city founders? No, I think so, man. You know, there's different generations and cycles of entrepreneurs and we all kind of push each other. We've all struggled together and now it's so cool to see so many of us reach some levels of success. But uh, I definitely feel like to to come of age and to build a company, that Startup Hustle, hustle is a part of it. You got to do it. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's humbling, man. You know, we mentioned today is the birthday. So I, I did a little math. 738 episodes have come out since the first one. 2.3 million downloads from people in 190 countries. And it's humbling. Like, and I think the thing is the realization that people can do literally an infinite number of things with their time. So if they're choosing to pay attention to what you're doing as whether it's a podcast or an entrepreneur or just a person, it, it appreciate it. And we appreciate everyone. I appreciate you coming back, man. Yeah, man. The, the, you got to tell people the Midwest has got something to say. It, we try to say that, you know, we say, <laughs> Hey, look, you know, there's, I've traveled the world and people will say you're from Kansas, huh? And they're like, yeah, cows, cowboys. I'm like, no, man, I live in a city. Like, That's it, man. I don't know anything about cows and know how to eat them. Cause you know, Kansas city barbecue is the best in the world. That's right. You heard it here first, Kansas city. The best gauntlet barbecue has in the been world. thrown. Gauntlet has been thrown. So, Donald, you have been up to quite a bit of stuff. Yeah, um, and wow, I mean, so so proud of what you're doing. I didn't even realize until today that you have elevated this. Uh, you've raised $20 million in capital during a pandemic. Yeah, man. It's How? Been, How'd you do that, it's man? It's been crazy. You know, I think first, Matt, a, a lot of it was understanding for the first time in my career, building a venture that has a, a mission behind it, a meaty and important mission. Every venture that I developed before definitely was a solution to a pain point, but there wasn't really like a, a, a guttural meaning behind it other than solution. Here's a pain point. I think I can build something that people can get behind. You know, uh, 2020 was an eye opener for the entire world, you know, not just the pandemic, but here in the States, obviously, you know, we had a lot of civil unrest. We had a number of deaths. We had, you know, political strife, you know, anything and everything, you know, that could happen in a year happened in 2020. And uh, it hurt a lot of companies, but it also created a lot of solutions. So. I had to look inward, you know, and think to myself, man, can I do anything more meaningful, you know, uh, with my skill set, with my talent to help the world uh, starting here in the U.S.? And uh, and that pain point led me to where I am. And I was fortunately enough to get capital partners and other partners that also saw things the same way. And I'll be transparent. You know, I think people being stuck at home and forced to see what was happening, you know, in our country and in our world also kind of open a lot of people's eyes. So capital that I likely would not have been able to raise in 2019 and 18 became a little bit easier in 2020. Uh, but kind of taking that viewpoint and taking that baseline to build to where we are now, you know, has really been, been helpful to what we're doing. Well, what are you doing? Let's tell everyone about that. Yeah, man. So uh, based off of a lot of things that happened in 2020, I was really thinking of internally, what could I do to help my community? You know, uh, I've now seen many, many instances and cycles of Black America struggling, not just with police brutality, but education reform, you know, employment reform, all the different things. And when I saw the protests, primarily here in Kansas City, and I knew a lot of entrepreneurs that were protesting uh, in their 20s here in town, and it reminded me of when I was 20 years old, I was protesting something similar called the Gina Six. You know, and my dad in his 20s was protesting very similar things, you know, and my grandfather and his grandfather before him. And I realized that time is the enemy in some instances, you know, of progress when it comes to protest, because every generation is facing the same problems and it feels new. And we don't realize that now we're five or six generations behind fighting the exact same things with very little done from a solution perspective. So added to that, I found out last January that I was uh, expecting a new child with my wife, a son. And that also changed things for me a while because now I'm thinking to myself, man, I got a kid about to be born into this crazy world. Can I do anything to make this world a little bit better, you know, than it currently is? And went to sleep that night thinking about, you know, uh, ways that I could make impact. And I realized, you know, that maybe as a founder for the first time in my life, I should go in the past, not the future to think of solutions. Because sometimes I realize, again, we're running into the same cycles that we've been into before. And I learned a ton, man, digging into other underserved communities, you know, in the U.S., primarily starting with the Jewish community, which a lot of people don't even realize at one point, you know, Jewish folks in the U.S. couldn't put their money in American banks. Right. So they had to create their own financial institutions. 
and a rabbi's son created Goldman Sachs. Turned out pretty damn good. A few years before that, Italian immigrants came here broke looking for work, and they had to start their own bank because they also couldn't put their money in American banks. So they started Bank of Italy. In 1930, Bank of Italy transformed into Bank of America, number one commercial bank in the world. So I'm like, that's awesome. How come black people haven't done that? And I found out that actually five years prior, we actually had attempted to. So uh, quick TLDR, 1863, Abraham Lincoln emancipates slavery, right? And that's with the biggest of air quotes for those that are listening. Look it up. Uh, and created a financial platform called Freedman Savings and Trust for Civil War veterans. Because even though black Americans helped win the Civil War, they weren't equal enough to bank in American banks. So 15 branches nationwide, things worked out, you know, what they thought pretty well, marble floors, mahogany wood, like beautiful. And that bank uh, had an all white board who could care less about their new depositors, many of which were, again, Civil War veterans, but also they opened up to all black Americans. So the pennies that those newly freed slaves put into that bank were used to provide loans to entities like the KKK. Can't make this stuff up. Wow. So the bank does extremely poorly, as one would expect when you invest in entities like the KKK. It's not good for business. Still not good for business. Uh, and they need to bring in a new name and a new face to reinvigorate the base. And they brought in Frederick Douglass. And I realized, wait a minute. I know Frederick Douglass. He was a newspaper owner, an abolitionist, had a really cool haircut. How come I never <laughs> learned in school that he was the president of a bank? And he put in $10,000 of his own money back in the 1860s. So my mathematicians out there can do the math. That's a lot of money. And he realized six months later that, man, they were trying to get him to resurrect the corpse. And he left. And that wasn't the worst thing. So after he left, a year after, Freedman's Savings and Trust closed. And the rub is that federal deposit insurance didn't get created for another 90 to 100 years. So you can imagine what happened with all of those newly freed slaves funds and their pennies lost. And that was America's or black America's first introduction to America's financial ecosystem. And uh, that gave me all of the all of the the interest and mission alignment that I needed to go out and build something that I consider, you know, would be my ancestors wildest dreams. You know, a digital first, equitable financial solution, helping black America, one, reclaim its economic impact because we spend one and a half trillion dollars every year in the U.S. enough where we would be ranked the 13th largest country on earth. And secondly, to passively build wealth. You know, there's been so much money generated and wealth built here in the U.S., but we've been systematically blocked from understanding how that works. Case in point, why is it that we're teaching people in high school about trigonometry which, sorry, teachers, I have not used since my 12th grade year of no school. No doubt. No <laughs> doubt. But we don't teach kids about taxes. No. We don't teach kids how to balance checkbooks. But we somehow expect folks to learn how to do all of those things, I guess, through YouTube. Maybe some somebody in the education system knew YouTube was going to be on the, the up and up. And that's how you learn those things. So we want to use our technology to help people passively build wealth because we recognize that time is, once again, not on our side. You know, by 2053, uh, the Brookings Institute reported that the net median wealth of black families in the U.S. will fall to zero dollars. That's a pretty big problem, considering that inflation is going up and it's not like there are jobs, you know, popping up all over the place. When I was growing up every month, some car manufacturer was opening up a plant. You know, Walmart was opening up a new distribution center. But now if Amazon isn't opening up in your area, where are you going to work? You know, how do you get those good paying jobs, you know, that can help you live, you know, uh, a quality life? And I'm not talking about the minimum wage stuff because we all know now 15 bucks an hour is just not going to cut it. 20 bucks an hour barely cuts it with inflation going up. How do you live a comfortable life? How do you afford to send your kids, you know, to these extremely expensive colleges? So, so much so, has to be so, done. So, so you're talking about, you know, they say if you're going to eat an elephant, you got to do it one bite at a time. You just laid out a whole herd of elephants, man. That's it, like, man. I mean, it's not just one. You're talking about 200 years of, of systematic injustice, problems, like all of it. And, you know, and, and it's real. I mean, it's real. There's no doubt about that. And so where do you start? Because that's, I mean, it, it, at some point, you're one guy with a piece of paper in your hand or a digital piece of paper in your hand saying, you got, I've got an idea here. 
So how do you, where, where do you, where do you sink your teeth in? Yeah, man. I mean, for us starting off, just meeting people where they are, right? So recognizing that digital first platforms might not be the easiest thing for people to adopt. So we've built Kindly into a platform that's a combination of a personal finance management app, financial education app, and a neobank, right? So what does that mean? You know, we don't require every customer to get a debit card to join the community because we recognize that people want to feel comfortable with who they do business with. And Black America, like many other underserved communities, have reasons to be skeptical because look at how things started here in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, Recent news, uh, just to quickly pivot, Capital One mentioned that it will no longer charge overdraft fees. But along with that news, we also learned that they made $120 million last year in overdraft fees. Guess who those customers primarily are? People that can't afford overdraft fees. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, Capital One, for doing that. You know, but what about the last few decades? You know, <laughs> can we have the the five billion back there from the go. last fifty there years? There you go. Right? And if Capital One is making that much from overdraft fees, you know, what do you think the Wells Fargo's, the PNCs, the J.P. Morgan Chases of the world are making and have continued to make over the last couple generations? You know, so for us, we meet people where they are. We give them the ability to connect their external accounts. We help make them smarter about the way they're spending their money because financial education and being comfortable with money is very similar to working out. Guarantee you a lot of people listening to this probably about this time, you know, have spun up their new year, new year campaigns and they're going to go to the gym and you're going to work out and you're going to lose those COVID pounds. But we know statistically that 90 plus percent of people after the first couple of weeks, it's going to be a wrap. Well, with financial education and trying to build wealth, that also is a point where people don't have support, right? There's no one saying, hey, Donald, you set that initial goal of 200 bucks and buddy, you did it. Congratulations. Keep it going. It's a very private thing, people with money. So if you have a whole community of people who have already been underserved, working their way out of a hole because black folks and brown folks also typically have more debt for a lot of socioeconomic reasons, right? If you don't have that support system to help you get you know, to reach those goals and pat you in the back and prompt you to do more, then how do you help? So we give people the ability to connect their external accounts, make them smarter about their money. We also provide financial education through experts that we call money mentors. And then we also have the Neobank side, which is the depository account, a debit card with no overdraft fees, no minimum balances. So we're really going the extra mile to invest in our members so that they feel seen and supported. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said about your comments about meeting people where they're at. So maybe a, the least known fact about me is I was once a sociology major and I, I just love that stuff. But um, when it comes to sociology and how societies work, uh, I mean, you're really validated. So if you go out to a really wealthy neighborhood, it'll be surrounded by banks. Mm -hmm. But if you go to a neighborhood that isn't, it will be full of liquor stores and places that sell lottery tickets. Yep. And that's just literally like stats. And so you talk about what you're putting in front of people. And then some of the things too is you put people in, in a tough situation where you force them to not use a bank because uh, you talk about credit and like you go to set it, go walk into any bank USA, you fill out the form and they want to run your credit to give you a, a checkbook. And if you haven't been in that spot or you haven't had the ability to build credit, they're not going to let you open an account. Now you got to go cash your check somewhere else. They take a piece of it, this, that, all the way down the line. And it's it's really kind of stacked against so many people. Yeah, man. I mean, 18% of the black community in America is unbanked, which means they don't do any business with a bank. And nearly 50% of the community is what we call underbanked. You know, meaning that they don't properly utilize banks or banks don't properly offer services. And then you them. don't have the history. You don't have it. it it's that pedigree that it, that our our financial system's been built around. And it's also the same thing for you look at like a lot of uh, given any background, but a lot of the stuff stacked against. Uh, you talk about bringing kids into the world. You're like, wow, like there's yeah, just the, even college. Now I didn't graduate from college, so I don't have any college debt. And I got to tell you that it was it, not having that saddle on me was helpful. Now I had to learn a few more things and kind of climb out of it. But I look at just so many people that are, you know, just faced with all that. It's, it, it's, a, it's a real challenge. All right. So, so you're taking it to where they're at. Um, and, you know, how do you get 
how do you get someone who hasn't like you talk about the educational component, you know, you can't teaching people to care is actually you care or you don't Mm -hmm. 100%. And I've learned this mainly with employees. So if you have an employee that cares, you have an intangible, you can't train someone to do it. So how you, how do you train people to care more? I guess it might be a little easier if they have, if there's a vested interest in their own future or stability or security, but where does that, how does that message begin and come out? Well, I mean, even then it's tough, right? Because people don't know what they don't know and coming at, customers with the, I'm going to make you smarter, or I'm going to teach you about money isn't really the approach that we we go after. So the way we start is we make sure that we have representation because for too often, you know, our community has been advertised to by a lot of large companies through influencers and ambassadors, right? So, you know, they want to get Black America to get a credit card or a debit card. What do you do? Right. They typically go out and hire a pop star that looks like black America, an athlete that looks like black America. And that person says, hey, you should get this new card because I do, too. Ha 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 ha. And that works. Right. But what those companies possibly should do that might be more impactful is maybe get some representation, have black people on your board, have black people on your C-suite team. But that's what a lot of those companies won't do, because we unfortunately respond to those types of advertisements. So for us, we recognize the financial education that we've been taught and what we've been shown has been credit 101 and how to create a budget. What we've done that's different is we go and find diverse experts in those fields that speak to our community the way our community wants to be spoken to that understands the unique challenge that our community has. And because of that, we build affinity. We have a relationship with our customers. Uh, Even our name kind of uses that. When people hear the word Kinley, they think about kin. So Kinley is an adjective that we set up and agreed to because it means to be like family. We want people to feel comfortable because money is already a very complex, anxiety-riddled, you know, thing that a lot of people deal with. And not only that, we invest in our members, right? So we give people the ability to earn what we call Kinley coins for making positive financial decisions because that's how you support people, you know, to keep doing the things that they're doing, you know, versus me just saying, Donald, congratulations, you just saw this video. You know, you're able to now earn those Kinley coins within our platform to reward you for the things that you do. And we feel that investment is something that is important for us because the return on that investment is more financially savvy customers. Yeah. And that's what I want to want to pivot the second half of our episode into is the investment piece. And you know, we were going to, uh, you know, as we get into that, a quick reminder that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Now, you know, as, as we mentioned, and, and we threatened to talk about raising capital during a pandemic. Now, who knows? We might be here for three more hours. Oh, yeah. If we get into all that. And, you know, and I don't want it, I feel like what we're just talking about is almost like we could talk about that for a while. It's a lot, man. man. Yeah. And Heavy then, stuff. And, you know, raising capital is is here on Startup Hustle is easily, well, in my life is easily the most popular topic uh, outside of me talking to our clients at full scale about their teams. So, you know, you're the, it's been a very whitewashed world when yeah. it comes to, to tech founders. And honestly, man, like I take some shit for that because, mm-hmm. you know, I've had people that are like, you, you talk to tech founders, like, why are so many of them white? I'm mm-hmm. like, because so many of them are white. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know where else, like what else to say. It's like, it's a statistic thing. Now you mentioned last year um, there, and this is, this is going to be, maybe feel a little controversial at, at some point during this conversation. Cause you mentioned, you know, last year you had the, the BLM movement and a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, a lot of um, just, you know, publicity around the bullshit that goes on in so many communities and you see a lot of funds, a lot of investors, a lot of places they're saying, okay, well, we're going to slot this out. We're going to we're going to be fair. We're going to hand this money out fairly. And I'm sitting there looking at it and I'm like, where then everybody's getting funded because there's, there's a lack of, of participants on some level. 
And maybe that raised some people's ability to, I don't know, like how did that change the landscape for you and everyone else? Man, it's a heavy topic, but but one that needs to be had. You know, one, I have a mixed feelings about funds who created something new after 2020. On one hand, I appreciate you for at least taking the step. But on the other hand, where the hell have you been? Yeah. What right. what happened different with it, black it was, it was a knee jerk kind of feeling. It's like, oh, everyone's pissed off. Well shit, here's here's this. Well, and, you yeah. know, and statistically not a lot of checks have been written. So most of it was performative statistically. And that was my that was my point with it. It was like I want to see who's gonna follow up on this. Cause, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, hey, we're gonna fund everyone or whomever. And I'm like, okay, it's, I want to see who actually does it. Do you think a lot of that was just kind of a, a PR grab? 100%, just because we, we haven't, the statistics are still essentially the same. You know, black founders are not being funded more now than they were before 2020. You know, well, I, Why is that? Well, because I, I think it, it looked good. It, it was a great PR news line, you know, and headline for funds to say, hey, we've created this additional fund specifically for black and brown founders, but you haven't really seen any follow-up from those same funds about who they've invested in because most haven't cut any checks or those that have cut the smallest checks in their fund's history. And I know a couple of examples. I won't air them out right now, but they know who they are. You know, so it's one of those things where that's not a surprise to me, right? You know, I hope that people see that it's good business because all the statistics show that too, that it's good business to do business with diverse founders, female founders, black founders, brown founders. Why? Because we already know how to get by with less in life, right? So imagine what that looks like when you talk about capital efficiency in an actual venture. You know, uh, I don't think about my burn in the same way a lot of my peers, my white peers think about burn, right? I have very large capital providers and capital investors that want me to be more aggressive. And that's something I have to teach myself to do because I'm so accustomed to doing things with less. Uh, even with how we recruit, like we we are a lot more thoughtful about the people that we have around the table. You know, so I think 2020 was a very interesting, you know, year. Uh, it did help, you know, my capital raise, but I've already started to see that window close. So those underserved founders like myself who were able to raise capital over the last 12 to 18 months, we recognize we now have a responsibility. Uh, a, a slit in the window was open. We received some funding. Now, I'm also the first to say that my capital providers did not invest in us due to the things of 2020. You know, they saw big business opportunities, outsized return opportunities. And as a result of that, that's the only reason that I decided to partner with them. If I'm your first black investment, I won't be your first black investment. Sorry. You know, the, uh, there's plenty of other founders that I feel, you know, if you're going to cut that check, cut the check for them. And my capital providers recognized that the opportunity that we had was huge. And I love the fact that we were not the gold star for them in 2020. You know, there was no press release on this fund invested in Donald and Kinley, you know, as a response to X, because that's not why they invested. But those founders like me who did raise capital, we now have the spotlight on us and people are going to look at us and see our successes and failures and use that as a use case with why they should invest more in diverse founders or not. And that that's a responsibility that I take serious and a lot of us take serious, you know, but it's just one of those things where. Again, we know how to get by with less. You know, there were some difficulties, you know, last year, but we have a really big responsibility now to use what we have to do good in the world. Yeah, the, some of that that general fund expansion was, I mean, was also supposed to be designated female founders. Mm -hmm. There was, I mean, even companies like Techstars had, had slots where they wanted, you know, uh, army veterans. Mm -hmm. And a lot of different stuff, uh, but some of it's also stats. Yep. So I, and honestly, I don't know this, like when it, I don't, I don't know if anyone truly knows what the real demographics are on tech startups. First off, what is a tech startup? Like you can call it a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know. It's, 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 I, I think it's pretty interesting. And, you know, when it comes to some of that, uh, some of the stuff that funds did and, Who's going to hold them accountable? Because yeah. you can say you're going to do shit all day and then not do it. 
Yeah, and, and, you know, so you kind of, it's, and I mean, you talk about things have been happening since the history of words. So mm -hmm. I think under, under delivered promises mm -hmm. might, might be a core foundation of, of all the crap that, you know, I mean, politicians, just everyone <laughs> been doing it. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of us all fixing our own problems, right? So we've been talking about this VC thing now for decades, right? And the likelihood that the VC world all of a sudden is going to wake up one day and go, oh my goodness, we should now all of a sudden start investing more in female and underserved founders. Probably not going to happen, right? And, and I also want to make another distinction. Well, they should want to invest in profitable deals. They if, should. Any, if anyone should be zeros and ones and not care about anything else, it should be those folks. It's true. But they're but, not. But it's, it's, it's not as black and white as people think. So I'll be super transparent. There's also something, there's a role that we play as underserved founders that has to be addressed. One, we have to think bigger. We have to go bigger because we give the VCs all the right reasons to tell us no. Right. I know so many founders like myself, you know, early in my career that I did not think it was possible for me to raise more than half a million dollars for a seed round. Why? Because I had not seen anybody that looked like me raise more than half a million for a seed round. The downside to that is those of us that have done that, we give up 20 to 25 percent of our company for half a million bucks. Right. Most VCs know that if you want to raise capital and build a company that can really have outsized returns, you got to go bigger. Right. But it takes so many of us so long to figure that out. I mean, I'm talking to you all now, 38 years old. And the reason that I'm able to have some success now is because of all of the failures, you know, from my 20s and, and some successes too, you know, in my 30s as well. You know, but we have to go bigger. We have to get out of our own way and realize that if we want to do something meaningful and impactful, yes, the statistics are there, but let's remove all of those barriers for VCs to tell us no. So when VCs say things like, oh, you know, uh, you should be raising $3 million, they're right, right? Because guess what? Developers aren't cheap. Product people aren't cheap. Legal isn't cheap. You know, those things cost real money. And when I talk to founders now, they go, yeah, I'm raising a half million dollar serum. I'm like, bro, how are you going to get to your next inflection point when I know, you know, unless you're using companies like full scale, <laughs> you know, you're not going to be able to build a tech team, you know, where the average cost for developers is going to be 140K a year. You did throw that ball up near the rim. So I'm going to dunk it and go say for it. It, that developers can be affordable. Mm -hmm. when you go to fullscale.io. But that's, I mean, honestly, we even talked about that. I mean, even our business model it trends towards wanting to find companies that have already gained traction. Yeah. And those are, well, a lot of that is just, that's kind of a culture thing with us because, you know, we're hiring people that are already experts and mm -hmm. they don't want to come in and, and deal with day one startups because the one thing that I know about day one startups is that you don't have an owner's manual and you're figuring that out every day. Yeah, man. So it's a challenge. We got to create our own solution. So we want to change things that I think people who are current operators of ventures right now, when we have our liquidation events and acquisitions, then we're going to be have, have to become the VCs that cut those pre-seed and seed stage checks. You know, that's how things are going to be fixed. I invest now, I think I'm in 18 different startups. You know, uh, now I'm not writing the huge checks like funds are writing, but in addition to my check, I also have a pretty large network of people that I know that I can implement and leverage to help those startups and ventures too. We have to fix our own problems. You know, and as long as we're waiting for other people, other entities to do things for us, then it's not going to happen. Why in 2022 am I talking about building a financial technology company to help an entire community in the U.S.? I wish my company wasn't needed, but we are. All these many years later, you know, and, and I think there are a lot of underserved communities that have very similar problems that also have founders. I mean, there's companies out there like Daylight. Shout out to Daylight, Rob, Billy and team, you know, that are building a financial technology company for the LGBTQ community. Uh, there's also a company called Cheese in the neobank space building, you know, financial equity for Asian Americans. There's a company called Purple doing the same thing for disabled Americans. So people are starting to figure out if you want to get something done. You're probably going to have to do it yourself. I think that goes, that's 
I, I learned that a while back. Oh yeah. Just, you know, and, and I think another thing too, is no one's going to care about your business as much as you do. 100%. And we talk about caring and stuff like that. And you know, we set out to talk about raising capital during a pandemic and we've, we've kind of shifted into something else and I'm into it. So we'll change the title of this <laughs> to something, something else. Now, you know, one thing I, I'm, so I've known you for four years. Um, and some of that goes back to you being on the show you were at the Pure Pitch Rally, gave you some development credits at mm-hmm. one point. We've watched you grow. Um, you and I, like realistically, I think we're pro- as far as entrepreneurship in Kansas City are, are referred to as community leaders in mm-hmm. many ways. But you have a hell of a lot more pressure on you than I do. Yeah. Is that fair? Pressure. Pressure's pressure, man. Like, I, I But it's at, the truth. It is. I mean, I just look at it as a responsibility, you know, and... Well, I say that and like, we, I mean, we weren't afraid to toe up to some controversy. Oh, if I, enough. if I fail, I'm just a dude that failed. And, yeah. But if you fail, like you're going to, you have a lot more weight on it. Cause like, well, at least that's what you just defined. It's cause, true. cause you are, you're, you're a trailblazer and trying to, you're going to be under a lot more scrutiny. Yeah. You know, there is definitely pressure there. And the reason I make light of it is because, man, I have such an amazing community behind me, you know, that that I'm not afraid of failure, which is and I think that's a very important trait that is a luxury because I've only gotten to this point because I have failed so much. So those of us that are at a position where we're having some success, most of us have failed multiple times. And I want underserved entrepreneurs to understand that failure is completely fine. So many of us don't take the leap because we're afraid of what happens if. I don't care. But that's hard to build confidence in someone that is in an underserved community and looks at at the opportunity in front of them as it. They're it's, like, it's a luxury. That might be it. Yeah. Well, that's the luxury you mentioned. Because I mean, I'll just shoot it real. Like, if I fail at what I'm doing, I could probably get someone else to do something different with me. One hundred percent. And that has a lot. Well, I, I'm good at making money, and I'm great at selling things. Mm-hmm. So I've told my wife several years ago, I'm like, we'll always be all right. I mean, whether yeah. we, whether we're winning or losing or whatever, we'll always figure that out. But, you know, that's a, I think that's a different reality when you talk to, you know, someone that looks at, hey, this is my opportunity. And if I mess this up, that's it for me. But it's not. You're right. Yeah. Th- and a- actually, I, I'd prefer to get behind, invest in, well, we look at Roy at Healthy Hip Hop, yeah. and we put a significant amount of resource into that. Yep. Roy's got scars. And I like that because he's not going to quit. Yep. Ro- Shout out to Roy. Yeah. Roy, Roy's my guy. Roy really is the person who got me going here in Kansas City after seeing the 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 hustle you know, and endurance and perseverance that he went through. My, my boy won every grant <laughs> known to man. He's like, if he was a boy scout, he has all the badges, all like the medals, all man. the badges. He got all yeah. of them. But you know, but that, that's what it takes, right? You know, so I realize it's easy for me to say, don't worry about the failure. But once you cross that threshold, man, it is liberating. I tell my wife all the time, if anything that I'm working on fails, give me 12 months and I'll be I'll have one of the best landscaping companies in no matter what city I'm in, right? Because I think about things different. I think about distribution channels. I think about developing product. I think about customer discovery, customer love that a lot of traditional landscapers don't think about, you know? And that's why I mentioned earlier, we got to get out of our own way. We got to go bigger than we thought because we have more time, more opportunities. And the most important thing is to realize the part that we play as entrepreneurs in this entire VC industry, right? Earlier in my career, I was going to VCs, you know, for help. Please invest in my company. And I promise that your $200,000 in my Series A round, you know, is going to turn into something, you know, incredible. And I'm going to stay up late and do all these things and make you this crazy amount of money. But I realize now that my capital partners are truly partners. They're giving me funds, but I'm going to be the one staying up late, waking up early, dealing with people, which is the hardest part of venture, building products to build them an outsized return. So now you're lucky if I take your money. And that's the mentality that we have to have, but we don't get taught because capital providers don't want us to think like that as entrepreneurs, because then it puts us in the driver's seat. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of angels and VCs out there that struggle to cut checks right now. They struggle and they don't want to invest in founders who come to them for help. They want to invest in founders who go, listen, I'm raising around. 
I'm going big. I want to raise this oversubscribed round that's going to be use these funds to hire the top developers, the top product people, the top marketers, the top legal counsel. And if I take your funds, we're going to do some amazing things. That's what they want to invest in. But it takes a lot for those of us that haven't had that experience to get to that point because it feels like arrogance. And I'm completely fine with that. I, I want people when they talk to me to to feel that I'm on that line because what they consider arrogance, I consider confidence. Because if I was white, what people would say is, oh, man, that guy Donald sure has a good head on his shoulders and he knows what he wants to do in life. But as a black person raising capital, I've definitely heard, oh, man, Donald, you're arrogant. Why? Because I know what I want, because I'm going bigger than you've seen before. I want you to get used to this. And all of my capital partners, that's what I told them. Listen, make sure that I'm not the last minority that you invest in. We're going to go and do this thing because nobody's going to fix our problems like us. People are scared to be, you know, arrogance and confidence is they, they're, there's a very thin, mm -hmm. thin, if even non-existent line in between the two of them. Really in the end, it's someone else's perception. Yep. So you can, and I, and I know that I, I deal with this a lot because I've been aware for a long time that not everybody likes me mm -hmm. I don't care because I'm confident with what I'm doing. I do the right thing for the people around me, for the people that I work with. And it's usually if people now look, some people are just arrogant, but a lot of times, like I said, arrogance and confidence get confused. And it's usually people that aren't confident that are, oh, that, that man or woman is arrogant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, if you have conviction in your beliefs and you believe in what you're doing, you believe in yourself, some people are going to think you're arrogant. Who cares? You know, you need, cause you need that confidence. I'm not going to give you a big check if you're like, well, I think it might work. I don't Correct. know. Maybe we'll just try it out and see what happens. Those aren't the checks you write. You checks you, you want to, you want, if you're going to get big, big money, like you've got, people want to know, like, you can't be iffy about it. That's it. You got to go big. And if you fail, recognize that that is actually a, a badge of honor for future ventures. VCs would rather cut checks, you know, into founders and operators that flamed out many times, multiple yeah, times, yeah. you know, then they would a first time founder. Why? Because they know that that founder likely has learned critical things that they need to do better for the next venture. And it's true. Just don't be afraid of failure. You know, we have so well, many. I've talked about this a lot because the thing is, is, as entrepreneurs, a lot of us started young and we did something and it went really well. And until we got kicked in the nuts, we thought we were bulletproof. Yep. So you kind of need that failure to bring you back down because I don't want to write checks or invest in people that have never failed because I don't want that. I don't want the moment that they realize that they're not bulletproof to be on, on my dime. That's it. I mean, that and I also say a lot of underserved entrepreneurs tend to be older because our risk profile changes where we'd rather work longer and uh, earn money and then invest in other ways, franchises and things like that. But a lot of our white counterparts in the venture space are exactly right. You know, 18, 19, 22 years old, raising the same money that I'm raising now in my late 30s, right? So imagine where those founders are going to be by the time they're 40. Well, guess what? We know what they look like. They look like Elon Musk, right? You know, where they get to my age and they built such a strong network of capital partners and employees where they can raise a, a $20 million pre-seed round, you know, from an idea they drew in the back of a napkin because people know they have that experience. That's why it's so important for us to go big and go big earlier and not be afraid of failure. Yeah, I don't think it's your job as a founder to convince an investor why you're not a risk. Mm -hmm. You know, like they know it. They know it. They're not in the venture game because they don't think it's a risk. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've we've had, oh man, I don't even know how many VCs on here. And I've done a very unscientific poll um, over 700 plus episodes. I first off, I've asked everyone that is an investor to bet on the jockey or the horse and everyone literally unanimous jockey. Yep. I, we bet on the, on the founder and the people. And also they really expect one in 10 to one in 20 of their investments to actually pay big. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is like really crap odds. Like, yeah. I mean, think about it. Like, I mean, it really is like the best bet you can make at a casino is red or black on yep. the roulette wheel. That is the highest statistic probability that you will win. And you got like 47 and a half percent chance. That is literally 40 times greater than what a VC is hoping for, not yep. even getting, but hoping for. So they well, understand the risk and you just need to show them that you have 
a big idea. Cause that's another thing too, is people that write big checks don't want, they're not chasing small ideas. Well, you're, I agree partially with what you said, right? So I think part of it, again, for underserved founders, something that we have to be extremely mindful of is unfortunately we do have to prove, you know, how things and why things will be de-risked from our venture. Sure, sure. Cause you think about, I mean, there are companies right now that are turning, uh, oxygen and hydrogen and atmosphere into jet fuel, right? Now, could I get out there and say, hey, I'm Donald Hawkins and I'm building a company that is turning ozone into jet fuel. The first thing an investor is going to look at when they look at me is one, why the, are you, why, are you a rocket scientist? There you go. Yeah. Why are you yeah. doing this? Yeah. I haven't seen anyone yeah. look like you do this before. Do I trust that you can actually get this across the finish line? So a big idea is a big part of it. But what we have to do as founders is make sure that we find ways to answer any questions that we get asked, but more importantly, the ones that we don't get asked. So when black folks and brown folks and women pitch investors, the conversations they have after we hang up that call is the most important thing. And I guarantee you, if uh, an analyst for a VC phone goes, oh, I was talking to this guy, Donald Hawkins, and, and he wants to turn ozone into jet fuel. The first question they're going to get asked is, great, what experience does he have in that space? Oh, he didn't mention anything, nothing. Then instant no, right? So as a founder, what can you do to take those gaps and build strength points around you? Can I have an advisor on my team that used to be head of X, Y, and Z at NASA that's now retired, but now this person is going to be joining my team post-raise, you know, as my chief development officer? Does that make it look a little better? And now it's Donald Hawkins, the biz dev sales marketing CEO with a really strong team behind him. And sometimes as founders, we go a little too early. We go to VCs with the big ideas thinking that we look like our peers, but we have to be mindful, unfortunately, that we don't get viewed the same way. I mean, because we've seen so many kids from Harvard, from Stanford, from Columbia that have zero experience building what they're building. And they get the funding, then they get the advisors or they get the employees. For underserved folks, we got to get the employees, advisors, and mentors before we even talk to the VCs. You, you know, you're right. And I'm going to, I mean, I'll, I'll say 100% you're right. And I think I probably demonstrated some of the lack of cultural awareness. Because, mm-hmm. you know, here I am, I'm like, you don't have to tell them it's not a risk. Well, you might. I oh, mean, yeah. and that's true. And that and that was maybe my reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I I don't raise capital. We talked about that mm-hmm. before you came in. You're like, DeCourcy, why aren't you raising capital? I'm like, I don't want to deal with the people. <laughs> that was literally my response. I was like, yeah. So here we are hundreds of episodes later. And episode two was titled uh, raising, raising capital sucks. It does still suck. Oh yeah. It sucks no matter who you are. And then it's, I guess it sucks worse for others. I think anytime, well, obviously underserved communities, I think that that's always a challenge. First time founders, because you don't have any track record, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? Like, so do something. I think that's the time when it's okay to do something that you don't have to have these grandiose dreams. Now, if you're going to go to a $4 billion fund, they don't write checks for a hundred grand. Correct. So some of it's get yourself in front. Like we talk about raising money, get yourself in front of the right people. Yep. Like you mentioned talking about like, you know, a hypothetical startup that uh, is going to turn something into jet fuel or whatever. Don't go to a fund that writes checks for enterprise software. Mm-hmm. So where, where, do you go if you're a minority founder? Yeah. Where where are some of the best let's let's call let's give some people a little praise. Like who who is writing checks? I mean, no, there's a ton. I mean, that there's some local funds here in the, the Midwest that do a good job uh, and that a lot of people haven't heard of. So I gotta give a shout out uh to the Jeremy's and Emmanuel over at Hiram Capital. You know, they're doing some neat things uh, here in the space. Dan Kerr uh is always one of yep. my faves. You know, he, oh, he's yeah. He's one of the, the few VCs that I feel founders can meet with that will tell you the truth, right? He will tell you your baby is ugly and you yes. need to hear it yep. uh, right uh, here as well. Always got to give my girl Jill Myers a shout out. She's been doing the work, you know, over at Digital Sandbox and the SBDC along with Sally and team uh, that I love. But I think also something that's really important is that and this has been part of my message, Matt, you've known this for years now. You can live here in the Midwest, raise capital from everywhere. Yeah. Right. There are angel investors in California and on the East Coast that can't give away 
enough money because founders don't want their money. Dude, they tell me on this show, mm -hmm. they like, I will turn off the recording and they'll say, can you help get me in front of some people in the Midwest? Because you get out of these little tiny, like San Francisco, California, sure, it's a huge state, got a ton of people in it, but then there are 49 other states and they don't know where to start. Correct. Because Kansas City, Boise, Oklahoma City, St. Louis, you know, they all look the same to people that aren't from Mega City. We saw that right at the beginning of the episode. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't live on a farm because I'm from Kansas City. You know, there's a very, very robust startup world and all of these, there might not be the no, total number, but there's a ton of really interesting folks out there. And, you know, and that was a good list of folks. I mean, that's, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, I think another thing I've noticed that that was a little bit, well, you want to see it, you got to see it, there's got to be an uncomfortable paradigm shift to change things in the long term. Otherwise, I, I it, we, we finish episodes of the show with, with normally with what we call the founders freestyle. And, mm -hmm. and today's episode of Startup Hustle was brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. So we kind of use the end of the show to kind of recap. Uh, a few things that, that we're talking about. And, you know, I think that, you know, well, well, I mean, what stood out for you in this conversation so far? I mean, a, a lot of different things, man. Uh, you know, one, I just think double tapping on the importance of folks going big, right? Nobody's going to fix problems like people who are actually in the problem, right? You know, because we know what we need, but we just have to have the intention also think something that, that I want to leave founders with uh, that I feel a lot of minority founders make mistakes on is we're not prepped enough or we go at rounds as really weak seed rounds and really weak uh, series A companies. You know, we got to learn how to sandbag. Like it'd be much better when you understand the stages of like pre-seed rounds where you raise capital technically in the pre-seed you know, to stand up operations, not to actually build products and get to these crazy large inflection points. Most minorities skip the pre-seed, right? So we go to VCs and angels as like really weak seed companies, you know, because we don't have a product, but we say, hey, VC, hey, angel, we need your money to build said product. And that's not what they want to invest in that, that around. But there's so many things that we can do to become really strong pre-seed companies. You know, VCs and angels want to see that you have the salesmanship and the mission and the interest to get other people to buy into your mission before they do. And that could mean getting really good advisors, really good mentors, or getting prospective employees that work for companies right now. And you can ask them, go to LinkedIn. This happens all the time. It's one of the biggest hacks in the venture space. Find somebody you want to hire, reach out to them on LinkedIn, have conversations. And in, at the end of that conversation, say this, I would love to bring you on board my team. We don't have a product yet. We don't even have a website. We don't even have a name, you know, but if we're able to raise our pre-seed round or seed round, would you be willing to join us? It is the easiest question that you can ask and you can get really solid people to say yes to that. So imagine what your deck looks like versus what it is now. Your deck right now is a picture of you saying founder first time, right? No experience. But what does it look like if you have your picture alongside three or four of the people who have that experience and you can easily put under their name post-race? So the VCs know, man, this, this founder has gotten somebody else to buy in. That de-risks things significantly for the VC. So now they're not funding you to hopefully see that you know how to manage money. You already know what you're going to do with it. So be really strong pre-seed companies, be really strong seed companies, and we have to do a better job of sandbagging things. Let's get ahead of the game, go bigger, raise more money. And another thing, and I'm dropping a bunch right now, Matt, because I meant to get this out earlier. Is, that's, why we, that's why we have the freestyle <laughs> at the end, man. That's why we, do, why we do it. Yeah, man, is don't worry so much about valuation. This is something that I feel a lot of founders get in their own way. They want to raise capital and go, oh, I want to raise $200,000. And I'm thinking about a, I don't know, uh, $8 million valuation. Well, buddy, that math don't math, yep. right? You know, so yep. if you're raising a certain amount of money, know that at your early stages, you're going to give up 25 to 30%, maybe 20% of you get the right capital partners. But base your... Well, you, if you were going to raise at $8 million, that you need to be raising $1.6 million. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Exactly, right? So Not, not 200 grand. Exactly. That's the point. That's yeah. it. So you have to be... Base the amount that you need to raise 
on your expenses. So if you could build your dream pre-seat team of developers and product specialists and legal and operations, what is that going to cost you for 12 to 18 months? And base your raise off of that. The benefits that when the VC or the angel ask you, how are you going to use this money? You can show them. Here's my pro forma. I need to hire 10 developers. Well, guess what? VCs know developers ain't cheap. VCs know marketers ain't cheap. So if you're raising that capital for expenses, then it makes it easier for you to ask for more versus the opposite, which is I want to raise half a million dollars and I'm somehow going to hire developers, marketers, contractors and uh, general counsel for my venture. They know that's not realistic, you know, um, and if you do those things, it's easier for you to raise more money because there's nothing that they can say to dispute that. Oh, Donald, you should shouldn't be paying 140 K, you know, for developers. You should go find developers for 80 K. Where? Yeah, right. Please show me where yeah. I can find those people. So I can show you. Oh, yeah, I know you can. <laughs> but they're not here. They're not here. That, exactly. that, and that's something, too, though. I, I, you know, one of the things that I run into, Donald, and, you know, I, I mentioned kind of a different reality. I mean, one of the things that I often get thrust into, it's like, OK, so I'm in the business of selling services provided by people that aren't local. And that pisses some people off. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, you know what? As an entrepreneur, I got to go. My whole business was started because I couldn't find people where I was at. I was willing to go anywhere to find what I needed to be successful. Yep. And I think that, some, that while we want to think locally, I want to encourage people to think globally oh, too. Because yeah. like, that, you know, so much of all the, the inherent root of so much of this problem is people almost on some levels being too local, meaning like they don't have diversity in their thought process and their communities and their outlook. They're like, you know, it's, I run into this all the time. It's like here in Kansas city, people are like, you got to keep your business local. I'm like, cause that big fortune 500 company that I want to get an investment from compete with or work around, they don't. Mm -hmm. So some of that's like a realistic expectation. And then some of it too is I, I you know, I, and I love the comment about valuation because my God, I talk to people all the time. I'm like, where'd you come up with that number? They're like, I don't know. It just seemed right. I'm like, and I remember I used to collect baseball cards when I was a kid and I'd go tell my dad, I'd be like, this Mark McGuire rookie card's worth 10 bucks. And he'd say, do you have someone who'll give you 10 bucks for it? And I'd say, no. And he said, that ain't worth anything exactly. right now. And that's really the, the thing. I think overall, put your mentality around the fact that your goal should be to build something bigger than you. Mm -hmm. Start there. Start there and then see what it's worth later. Because, you know, too many founders get stuck into doing too much stuff. They're reliant on only them. And it, it creates problems. You know, you, if you want to do something big, it's got to go well past you. The Like one of the most cliche sayings is all you can do is all you can do. Mm -hmm. But it's true. So surround yourself with the right kind of people. If you've never raised capital before, you don't have a history, get your get good advisors, get believers, get evangelists behind. Hey, hey look, I'm not going to. And, and don't pretend you know everything. It's okay to say, you know what, some, we, we have some of this figured out and yep. there are, to give you some reference, I literally had a guy on the show, I, I'm struggling for a name. I was so what kind of investments do you make and how wild and crazy are they? Like we might give someone $10 million just to see if a con proof of concept will be a yes or a no. That's the way it's supposed to work in venture. That's and, that, it, and, that's, and that's it. Now, the thing is, is they might be out 10 million bucks, but man, if they're right, that could be a billion mm -hmm. dollar company. But while everyone gets stuck on the unicorn and all that, like, here's the reality, man. Like, that's a long way down the road for anybody and everybody. And that is a very, 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 very small group of people. So, you know, like, I'm not saying don't have big dreams, but I mean, you got to get there one step at a time. And I, I think one thing, you know, I was uh, several years ago, long before, I, a couple of years before I had met you or done anything, I was in Times Square and I was at a meeting and I was thinking about raising some money for Gigabook. And, uh, and I, I was talking to this guy and he said to me, he goes, you know, Matt, what's easier, trying to climb the mountain by yourself or asking those on top to, to pull you up? And it changed my whole outlook because I didn't, I wasn't looking down anymore. I started looking up and I just started yelling, Hey man, can I get a hand? And you will be shocked. Like, so, like I feel so many people have helped me out. Yep. And I feel, and for me, that's part of why I do this show. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's knowledge transfer. Knowledge isn't meant to be hung on to. It's been meant to be passed on and just go find people. We were talking, we were kind of doing a little reminiscence of, of the past. Like one of the first 10 episodes was Ben Jackson from Bungie. Ben raised capital, him and, his, him and Harrison, his co-founder, they were at school and they were like, man, we have this idea for like, 
pickup trucks for like Uber and they didn't know where to raise capital. And they turned around and there was a wall of donors to the people that had, the families that had donated the building that they were at at school. And they cold called all of them smart and got an investor from one of them, like just start asking. And like, I think really in the end is, is the, the, the investor, the entrepreneurs I know that, that do the best are the ones that are relentless. Like, you know, my, my friend Luke will literally call banks. He will, he will like, you know, when I talk to him, he'll be like, Hey, I'm doing this. How many do you have to contact? He's like, I had to go with 78 banks, but the 78th one was really excited to do business with this and whatever. And that's the same thing. What I don't want to run into you in person folks and hear you say is, you weren't able to raise capital. And I say, why not? And you're like, oh, well, I reached out to five places and no one was interested. Okay. You're about 95 short. Oh yeah. And that's everyone. That's, that's like literally like whatever, like all, all designations, all groups, all of it. And, and maybe more. And, and the question is, is how bad do you want it? Cause if you're only out there just kind of poking around at three or four things, like get relentless. Get, I, mean, get, I mean, be ruthless, get out there and just like, and, and, and aim and aim at the appropriate targets too. Like if you're trying to make a company that does jet fuel, you're wasting your time talking to a company that does only does enterprise software. I love that. And to double tap on that too, you can also improve your chances of success by making sure that you remove all the reasons for the right investors to tell yeah. you no. Right. And, yeah. and that will improve everything, will increase your ability to raise capital. If in founders, we have to do a better job of going through like the internal due diligence. And I talk about that a ton. If it doesn't pass the sniff test for you, guess what? The VCs will yeah. smell that shit out extremely and, fast. And you have to assume that I tell people that all the time. I'm like, just wear it. Just wear it. Just like, like come in with a sign that says, this is what we suck at and, and what we know we don't know. Yep. Because I want to clarify that for you. Because if you do want to invest in this, you you need to just assume that these people are going to find it out. Oh yeah, they're going to know. They are going to figure it out, find it out, and you're wasting your own time. If, like you said, that internal due diligence, like where where are you weak? And I I love leading with that now. Mm-hmm. You know, f- 10, 15 years ago, I would have tried to hide it. Yep, I, I, I would have like you know, covered it up. And now it's just like, Hey, this is what we're good at. This is what we're not. And, and you know, I want to lay one last thing out there. Cause you mentioned, uh, I, I know that you have an appreciation for this, even though you've invested in 18 startups and had a few learn how to get good at one thing yep. before you try to do six mm-hmm. at, at your business, you know, and it's okay to have your hands in different stuff. But when you're early, like no one wants to invest in a company that's okay at six things you so much about, I was just talking with Watson, Matt Watson about this. We've been doing a 52 part series about how to start a tech company, which is kind of funny because it was supposed to be done by the end of the year. And we're about six weeks behind. Just like a tech company. I know. I know. So we kind of just owned it and we've been joking. We're like, yeah, we're, we're late and we didn't get it done on time. But you know, if you look at so many of all the things that are big, they're really just, they're aces at one thing before they branch out. Google didn't do 10 million things before they were great at search. Mm -hmm. And that's one you talk about reasons to tell someone to say no. If you haven't decided what you're going to be great at yet, and you're like, hey, I need your money because one of these six things is likely to pan out. It's not the right approach. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, we almost need like a second episode. Uh, I feel like it. I feel like it. A second 52 part series, huh? A second 52 part <laughs> series. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, here's the thing too, man. It's, it's the, all this stuff we're talking about is so real and it, it's, it's painful for me, man. Cause like, you know, like, I, and I hate talking about religion, sex or politics because mm-hmm. you usually piss someone off rather than anything else. But man, be fair people. Like give some people some opportunities and I don't know, man, it's, it's a, it's a challenge. And then for those of you that are on the, the, the more challenging side of it, don't listen to the haters, man. Just say next. It's my two favorite words as a salesperson is sold and next. Yep. And I'm, I'm saying one of them all day, every day. So if you, if you, like you said, I don't want to be your first black founder that you invest in. If it doesn't feel right, move on. Cause the faster you say next, it's kind of like failure, like say fail fast move on, move on, move on. There, there are almost 6,000 different VCs and funds now. 30 years ago, there were 50. 
I mean, that means that you have 5,500 to 6,000 doors to knock on. Exactly. So, so how bad do you want it? And uh, when are you going to start pounding on doors? That's it. That's it. And definitely look for funds that are run by former operators, former founders, right? You know, because they're willing to take bets a little bit early if they see the right jockey, even if things aren't as baked as they want. And, and we know it too. Like you can, you can just tell, well, Donald, we're out of time, man. Thank you for joining me. I'm super excited about all this, all, all of the, uh, all of this success and progress. And, you know, we're, we're going to definitely have to do a follow-up because we didn't even get into like, like all the cool stuff. So we'll, we'll put you on the, on the top startups list. And then we got to come back and we got to talk a little bit more about, about the, the who, what, where, when, how, that's All it, of it. Man. Are well, you in? We're yeah. not going to let you go 700 episodes. Uh, again. Fair enough. Fair and, enough. And, and, and Startup Hustle Trivia, episode 50 was actually recorded twice. We had new <laughs> microphones and had Donald over and, and we plugged them in and we literally did not assign. The, and it makes me nervous. Now I'm like, oh, yeah, now you got to check. Do we, do we put them? God, <gasps> and, and the first episode was so good. So for those of you who heard it, uh, sorry, we let you down. You didn't hear the, well, the first one never came out. We didn't turn the mics on. So exactly. anyway, I'll catch up with you down the road, Donald. Later, Matt. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.